One of uh, the things that every year it seems like the media has some type of toy that they uh, have managed to create this uh, pressure on parents to get this toy and, uh, or some, something related to that. And I started thinking about what were some of the real popular toys through the years that now they kind of find their way to the garage sale, but at the moment in time, you know, they had to be the thing you had to get. And so, uh, obviously, when you don't know what to do or where to find it, you do what? You Google it, right? And you can find out all sorts of things. But in 1903, uh, a little electric train was the craze of everybody, and uh, that they produced these little trains, and they could not keep them in stock. In 1935, at the height of the Depression, the game Monopoly was introduced. And one of the effects, if you know about Monopoly, and it's about money and buying property and all, that the thought uh, why this thing took off is because millions of people who were barely getting by had something that they could dream about cornering the real estate market in Atlantic City. Uh, remember Silly Putty? How many of you remember Silly Putty? Uh, everybody had Silly Putty. Now, you know, it's uh, one of those on the endangered, uh, your child may eat it or something. If your child is eating Silly Putty, you've got bigger issues than... Uh, uh, but anyway, in, uh, in that same year, Silly Putty was introduced, and uh, there was a shortage of rubber in World War II, and so a GE, General Electric Research Team, accidentally created the solid liquid, and within three years, more than 300 sales of Silly Putty were sold. No telling how many more now. In the 50s, it was getting a hula hoop. That was the big deal. And some of you, I bet, there's film of you somewhere with a hula hoop that we would love to see, and I promise we'll never show it in church. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, 1960, now, if you've watched, if you watched Elf, you know, at least uh, once, uh, you know that the Etch-A-Sketch, how many of you had an Etch-A-Sketch, right? That was before the Internet, children. Uh, that was our Internet, right? And, uh, but the Etch-A-Sketch... Can you believe that uh, when it debuted in July 12, 1960, since that time, over 170 million units have been sold worldwide of the Etch-A-Sketch. And the movies, when they come out, Toy Story, I think, was another one that had, uh, they just, people, you know, new generations are introduced. How about the Cabbage Patch Kits? 1983, people were getting going crazy, and uh, Xavier Roberts sold two and a half million units of the Cabbage Patch Kids, and uh, over a billion were sold worldwide. In 1983, near riots at some of the stores that were short on inventory, people were fighting and uh, getting arrested over Cabbage Patch dolls. They estimate uh, over, uh, what did I say? Anyway, over a billion uh, has been sold of those crazy things. 1989, Game Boy. Now we're, we're kind of moving a little forward past my time. Was a big sale. Pogs. I don't even barely remember what. Does anybody remember Pogs? Um, uh, some schoolyard game, Caps or something. Tickle Me Elmo. Now we know about Tickle Me Elmo, right? 
We, we love the Tickle Me Elmo. Um, and due to unexpected demand, the, do- the toy, which had a retail price of $28.99, was in short supply, resulting in parent-on-parent showdowns at various toy stores and people asking for as much as $1,500 for the coveted doll on the Internet. Over one million units were sold. Here you go, the Furby. Anybody remember the Furby? 1.8 million Furbies. I, we, guys, we are in the wrong business here. Um, over 15 million have been sold worldwide. Well, you know, it just goes on and on. And uh, again, what was today's craze and what got you put in jail and Toys R Us now is in somebody's garage sale. And maybe you could hold out on eBay. I'm still uh, upset that my mom sold all my G.I. Joes in a garage sale, probably like 50 cents. And, and if you have ever go on eBay, eBay and price those things out, you know, she... Uh, she, we certainly didn't predict uh, what they could have been. But one of the things is we talk about gifts, and that's always something we seem to migrate to this time of year. But we know that the greatest gift that never expires is the gift of Christ. It never changes. It, it is continuous, the greatest gift that we could ever be a part of, receive, and give. And this morning, as we continue in our series called The Christmas Journey, uh, there's four, four journeys that we are looking at this morning. We'll look at the third one. But on the first Sunday, on December 2nd, we looked at uh, Mary and Joseph and their journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And they were taking this journey to receive Christ. Mary and Joseph journeyed south from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and it was there that they began this relationship with their son Jesus, and they traveled that way to receive Christ. Uh, And you can catch these online and listen to those. Last week, we looked at the Magi, or sometimes we refer to them as the wise men. Uh, They journeyed from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and they traveled to Israel, and their purpose was to revere the king. They came to Christ, and they worshiped him. They revered him. Uh, The last Sunday, next Sunday on December 23rd, we'll look at Jesus from the cradle to the cross, and I added the crown, the cradle, the cross, and the crown, because that's all part of the magnificent coming of Christ in receiving acclamation and his authority uh, as the resurrected Savior. And this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' journey from heaven to earth, and that was to reveal God. Let's pray for a moment before we begin this morning and ask God's blessing on his word. Gracious God, how we are thankful for your holy word. We thank you that we can open up the scriptures and hear the literal voice of God. We thank you that it is an authority over our life. We thank you that it is reliable, it is truthful. And uh, God, we can not only learn about your ways in the past, but also we gain wisdom of understanding your ways and purpose for our life here and now. So Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is acceptable in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Again, we're going to talk about Jesus in this third journey in this Christmas series, in the journey from heaven to earth, and his purpose was to reveal God, to make God known. A couple of scriptures, and I'll be sharing with you probably a little more uh, various scriptures this morning, but John 1.18, the Bible says that no one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus has made 
uh, God known. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 3. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. I love that. Uh, and that's the NIV, the exact representation of who God is. Uh, Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Paul would go on to write in Colossians that Jesus, that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. Jesus came to reveal God. And our main text this morning is taken not from the traditional uh, passages around his birth, but is a little further in the Gospel of John, John chapter 16, verse 28, where Jesus makes the statement, he said, I came from the Father and entered the world, now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. And that, again, shows us that Jesus coming and making the journey from heaven to earth, there was an incarnation. His passion or his mission and his ascension is all in that one verse. And so I want you to notice with me a few things this morning relating to Jesus' journey from heaven to earth. Notice with me that he came from the Father. Where did Jesus come from? He came from the Father. The Father sent Christ. John 8, 42, I came, Jesus said, from God, and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. That's very important. You know, when the president of the State Department establishes uh, relationships with other countries, they send an ambassador to represent the nation is ambassadors all over the world, and they send them to stay in the embassy and to represent. And they are the ones that get in trouble, the ones that are called back, are the ones that freelance and start venturing out and speaking on their own authority. No, they are to represent the wishes and purposes of the United States and whoever really is the president at that time. And when they get in trouble, they start kind of expressing their own opinion. That's not their job. It was not Jesus' job to express his own opinion. He was sent by God. He was sent by the Father on a mission. And that sending by the Father, that is his authority. Where does his authority come from? The authority that God has sent him. John 3.13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, and that is the Son of Man. There's a lot of cults that make claim to have uh, unusual experiences and transcendent uh, experiences with whatever, claiming to speak from God. But Jesus says very clearly, no one has entered heaven except the one who came from heaven. And I'm not sure what that does to book sales on the heaven uh, tourist books, but anyway, we'll leave that for another time. John 3.31, Jesus said, the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. So that's his authority that Jesus came from the Father. And just quickly while we're talking about that, there's three aspects of the fact that he came from the Father. It has to do and we're reminded of his eternal presence in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Well, when was the beginning? Well, it was in the beginning. Is there a beginning with God? No. But 
to help us understand in human language, in the beginning was the Word, and that Word in the Greek is the Logos, and that obviously is addressing and speaking of Christ and His eternal presence. He was with the Word before the universe, before anything ever existed, the eternal presence of Jesus existed. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Boy, that freaked them out, didn't it? when he told that to the religious folks, that he existed before Abraham. He was saying that before Abraham was, I existed. In John 17, 24, the scripture's not there, but you may want to make a note of this. He prays in that high priestly prayer, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. So the preexistence, the eternal presence, has to do with the fact that he came from the Father. Notice the divine presence of Christ. In verse 2 of John 1, and the Word, look at this, was with God, and the Word, what? What does it say? Was God. Now, if any of you are familiar, and you've heard me mention this in various places, the Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God. They do not believe in the deity of Christ. And you know, when you can't get the Bible to say what your false teachings say, you know what you do? You write your own Bible. You make up your own Bible. So uh, in my office is a copy of the New World Translation. I don't use it for study purposes, but when I've taught on cults, I like to pull it out. And one of the ways that they mutilated that verse was because that verse contradicts their false teaching that Jesus is God, that he is divine. So instead of reading, and the Word was with God and the Word was God, if you were to pick up a copy of their uh, bogus translation, they had to do something with that, and they introduced an article in the Greek that doesn't exist so that it would read this way, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, little g. Well, that's not, that's not there. That is the deliberate manipulation of Scripture to twist it and bend it to say something that God certainly does not teach. But he came as God. He was with God, God the Son, intimate fellowship with God the Father. He was God, second person of the Trinity, uh, came from heaven to earth. He was God. And then his glorious presence has to do with the fact that he came from the Father and he left this glorious presence. It wasn't that he wasn't glorious, but there was a unique glorious presence that he had in the very aspects of his uh, being in that triune Godhead. Uh, John 17, 5, Father, glorify me. Notice the language. Father, glorify me in your presence. This is part of that priestly prayer that he gave in John 17, praying to the Father. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I, what? Had with you. Past tense, I had with you before the world began. When we were looking at Saul in Acts chapter 9 and the glory of Jesus uh, presented himself on that uh, road to Emmaus there uh, on the Damascus Road, that he uh, presented himself before Saul. And it, the Bible says they were knocked to the ground. They were on the ground before this glorious presence of Christ. John, when he saw the presence of Christ, the Bible says in Revelation 1.16 that his face was like was shining like the sun the glory can we understand that no 
We can't can't understand that. We can just talk about it, but we have no sense of understanding it. But the Bible says that for the believer in Christ, those who are born again in Christ, that one day we will see him face to face. And it will not be, it will not be some, uh, something like Moses. Remember, Moses just said, uh, I just want to see your presence. And essentially, uh, well, the Father said, you can't handle my presence. You won't exist if I show you my presence. So said, I tell you what, you hide in the cleft of the rock, and you'll just get a little sense of, or, or when I pass by, but you'll need to be protected there. Guess what? We will, as born-again believers, we will not need to be protected because we will be fully clean by the glory and in the glory of Christ because of the Lamb of God and his laying down his life for his people. The glory of the eternal city, the Bible says in Revelation 21, that this city, this glorious presence where Jesus will rule and reign, that the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. The Bible says in Revelation 21, 23, for the glory of God gives the light. Jesus' glory, what will that look like? I don't know, but I'm looking forward to seeing that. What will that glory look like? There won't be the sun or the moon or any, any aspect because the glory of Christ will illuminate that heavenly city. Jesus came from the Father, but I want you to notice, secondly, he entered the world. He entered the world. John 16, 28, Jesus, uh, Jesus said, I came from the Father and entered the world. I entered. I came into it. John 1, 14, the scripture is on the screen. And the word Jesus became flesh. And what did he do? He dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. One version is a little closer to uh, the Greek where it says that Jesus came and pitched tent among us, giving us a picture of when God pitched tent in the Old Testament where his presence was made known among the people, among the 12 tribes of Israel, picking up, I believe, on that picture that Jesus, we're not worshiping Jesus in an artificial structure, but Jesus himself is the very tabernacle of God. He himself has the very presence of God, and he came, and he dwelt among us. He pitched tent among us. And aren't you glad that Jesus pitched tent among us? He chose to come among us. He didn't say, oh, I don't want to go live in that neighborhood. They're a bunch of sinners. They're a bunch of rebels. They hate us. No, he came right in the midst of our garbage pile and dwelt among us and came and who knew no sin became sin for us. He came and dwelt among us. He entered the world. That's what Christmas is all about. That's why we're taking time in this series to remind us. And if you've been in church for any length of time, you know that, boy, we we hear this all the time. But yet, can we ever stop and say, I totally understand that. I totally get that. Let's move on to something else. No, Christ came into the world. The Bible says that when he announced, the, his, the angel announced his birth in Luke chapter 2, it says that a Savior has been born to you. My friend, if Jesus had not entered into the world, if he had not entered into our world, we would be among the most hopeless of all people. He fulfilled Old Testament Scripture, Isaiah 9, 6, a Scripture you'll hear and have heard because we quote it quite a bit. For to us a child is born. 
To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Paul helps us unpack this a little bit in Philippians 2 about how Jesus entered the world and what he left when he made this journey from heaven to earth. Philippians 2, being in the very nature, Jesus being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to when he became one in, when he became in human flesh but Christ made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on the cross MacArthur John MacArthur has a helpful note on this that I thought I would share John MacArthur makes this note that even in his incarnation And that's incarnation is becoming flesh. Even in his incarnation, listen to this, Jesus did not cease to be God, but took on a genuine human nature, body, and voluntarily refrained from the independent exercise of the attributes of deity. Okay? So his coming, he voluntarily, he didn't become less God, but he voluntarily refrained from exercising that Godness, if you could say it that way, or his ministry on earth. You say, well, I don't understand that. Well, welcome to 2,000 plus years of, hum- of Christian history. Great is the mystery of God, but the truth of the Bible is very clear. What Colossians 1:19, for God was pleased to have what? All his fullness dwell in him. You see that on your screen, the last scripture? God was pleased to have some of his fullness, a quarter of his fullness. No, Jesus was very God of very God, and yet entered the world and became humbled and born in human flesh. There's three primary reasons as we're talking about him entering the world of why he journeyed from heaven to earth. One was to declare the truth. To declare the truth. Look at John 18, 37. It's again, these are on the screen for your convenience. He says, quoting Pilate, when Pilate and he were having this dialogue, Pilate says, so you're a king then? And Jesus answered, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to do what? To testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. John 1 that we've looked at in several places, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 8, 40, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. He said to those that were trying to uh, 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 plan his death, he says, look, I have come to tell you the truth. Isn't it interesting that Romans 1 says that the fallenness of humanity, that the Bible says that the, one of the evidences of fallen humanity is that even they are exposed to the truth of God as creator, the Bible says that in, John, in Romans 1 that they intentionally suppress the truth. Think about the picture, mom and dads, or maybe hopefully you don't do this at the workplace, but if your kid ever put their fingers in the ear 
and said, da-da-da-da-da-da, I don't want to hear what you're saying. Yeah, that lasted about a nanosecond in our household. But anyway, there was, the attempt was made, all right? Uh, but they want to suppress the truth. In other words, don't confuse me with the facts. I want to do what I want to do here. I always think about, remember the jack-in-the-box? Remember we watched Elf, you know, and I love that scene where he's testing all the little jack-in-the-boxes, right? Don't look at me like I just said something horrible. You just smile, nod your head, right? Uh, <laughs> You know, what do you have to do? you got to suppress that little doll in that box and put the lid on it. And that always reminds me of people that want to suppress the truth. They are not interested in the truth. The truth came and dwelt among us. And what did we do? The Bible says that we did this. We crucified the truth teller. We crucified the one who came to declare the truth. But there's another aspect when, of Jesus entering the world, and that was not only to declare the truth, but to rescue the lost. To rescue the lost. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Romans 8.3, for what the law was powerless to do, us trying to earn our way to God, God did by sending sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. He was not sinful, but in the likeness of of mankind, humankind, Galatians 4. But when the time had fully come, at the right moment, at the right time, not a second early, not a second later, when when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, To do what? To redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons, of daughters. You see, Jesus came to do more than just save. He Part of that saving process is that Jesus came to seek and to save. Sometimes we'll say, well, I found God. You didn't find God. He found you. God was never lost. God was never lost. You were lost. And that's the real difference when you think about other religions, if we want to say, you know, about Christianity in comparison to other religions, other religions are all primed to figure out ways for you to get to God, to you to be good enough, to earn your way, to be accepted to some deity. That's the very opposite of Christianity, isn't it? God, the deity, came to us. He came to seek us. He came to seek And to save, God found us. God sought us. Many do not even know that they're lost. story is told of a family that was Christmas shopping at a mall when one noticed that the three-year-old Matthew, not our Matthew, I hope, but that he was gone. Terror immediately struck as they divided up to find him. Unsuccessful, the dad returned from the parking lot to see Matthew there standing, holding his grandfather's hand. Interesting enough, Matthew was not phased and hadn't even been crying. To him, there had not been a problem at all. The dad asked the grandfather where he found the boy, the candy counter. Little Matthew didn't look lost. He didn't know he was lost. He was oblivious to the danger that he was in. And I thought this, cookie, this uh, candy counter culture where people don't look lost, don't know they're lost, but they are lost because we're distracted by sin, we're distracted by 
everything, and we don't even know the condition the Bible says that we're in. Jesus came to seek us in order to save us. And third aspect of his entering the world is to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 3.8, the reason, John the Apostle writing later, the reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? To destroy the devil's work. The devil has been defeated. You say, well, it doesn't look like it. Looks like there's still aspects of the work of the devil that are still around us. And I thought, you know, it's like when you have a, like in Iraq or in Afghanistan or some war, there are still uh, groups that are resistant fighters that think that the war is still going on. Well, listen, the war is over. The war is done. Christ is victorious, and all that we see now are the resistance fighters to King Jesus ruling and reigning right now, here today. Yes, there's a future consummation of his rule and reign, but when Jesus ascended, he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he presently rules over his kingdom right now, right here. Hebrews 2 Since the children, we read this last week, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Christ, shared in their humanity so that by his death, the cross, he might do what? Destroy him, Satan, who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And notice this, and do what? What's another aspect of this destruction of Satan's work? And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Aren't you glad Christ has come to free us? What is the message of the gospel? It's telling that Christ has freed us, that he has given us freedom that is in Christ. Jesus came from the Father. He entered the world. And thirdly, he left the world and returned to the Father. In John 16, 28 Jesus said, the text that we're looking at, he said, I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. In the first journey, Mary and Joseph, they traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem, but eventually they went back. Uh, The Magi, the wise men, they traveled from Persia or modern-day Iran or Babylon in that area to Israel, and eventually they went back. Jesus came from heaven to earth, and he returned back from which he came. He said in John 16, 5, Now I am going, I am leaving to him who sent me. And Luke 24 says that while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. I love when we were in uh, Acts chapter 1 where they were talking with Jesus, and this was obviously after the resurrection, and then as they were still talking, Jesus ascended bodily, literally bodily, up into heaven. And remember those angelic, those angels said, why are you gazing up in the heavens? Why are you looking up there? Don't you know that, and here, this same Jesus, not a ghost, not some incarnation of somebody born in another part of the world, This same Jesus, that means the same body that John would say in 1 John, that we write about what we've seen, what we've touched, what we've handled. This same Jesus that you saw ascend, that you saw go up into heaven, this same Jesus will one day, in like manner, come back. 
Yes, we celebrate his birth. Amen? Amen. But let's not forget he's coming again. And my friend, he's not coming as a baby in a manger. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ, speaking of this promise, Christ was sacrificed, sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And the Bible says, among many places, but here, that he will appear, what, a second time. And he's not coming to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting on him. Are you waiting on Jesus? You see, if you do not know Christ, you're probably not really excited about waiting on him. You've heard me give this analogy before, but I always think about, you remember the time when you'd be in your classroom in school and the teacher would say, now I've got to go down to the office. You all behave yourself. I don't want anybody acting up. That lasted about as far as she went out the door, right? Didn't last long. And you know what happened? As soon as she went out the door, everybody started moving around, doing stuff. And then if you were really smart, you appointed somebody to do what? Stand at the door, right? And as soon as you heard the footsteps of her coming, all these little angels returned back to their seats. Well, my friend, we don't have to fear the footsteps in the hallway. Amen? We don't have to fear the footsteps in the hallway, but Christ is coming. Christ is coming again. And we celebrate his birth, but we celebrate his coming. Jesus asked the question to his disciples in Matthew 16. He said, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And they had a lot of theories. But then he asked, but who do you Who do you say that I am? Not who your grandfather said about Christ. Not who your mom or your dad, but who do you say that I am? And of course, we know Peter said, you're Jesus. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Pilate didn't believe. Look at John 16, 27, the verse before. I about skipped it. Jesus said, the Father himself loves you. Why? Because you loved me and have believed that I came from God. Do you believe Jesus came from God? Do we really believe that? I hope we do. Pilate didn't believe it. Caiaphas, the high priest, didn't believe it. Herod didn't believe it. The scribes didn't believe it. The Pharisees didn't believe it. Last week I mentioned as we were looking in Matthew 2, you basically got three people that sum up the world in that first 12 verses. You got Herod. He's disturbed by this talk about Jesus coming as king. The religious leaders, scribes, the Pharisees, they were disinterested. They were too busy playing church. And then you had the wise men, the magi, and they were delighted. Do we delight in Christ? Does this just an annoyance that we have to kind of go and deal with this, that should say, Lord, I don't, don't, don't let me take joy in all the, the stuff you get this Christmas. You'll re-gift it, you know, sometime in the coming year. You know, you know what you do. You'll sell it on eBay, all this stuff that we think is so important, but most of us are old enough to know that sometimes we got more excited in anticipating the gift, and once we had it, 
wants something else. Have we stopped delighting in Christ? The Christmas journey, Jesus from heaven to earth, he came to declare truth to you, who he is. He came to seek and rescue the lost, which is you, me. And he came to destroy the works of the enemy to benefit us. I'm glad that Jesus, I'm glad that Jesus came from heaven to earth for me. I'm glad he didn't write me off. And my friend, there's no nice and naughty list. We're all on the naughty list. Even Santa. If you still believe in Santa, we'll have a little meeting over here afterwards. He came to a people that the Bible says in Romans 5, the Bible says that we were enemies of God. Think about that. Enemies of God. Would you give your and sacrifice your child for an enemy, let alone a friend? God sent his only son that whosoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life.